Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Jay Tyler from Holt Assembly of God, and I want to thank you for listening to this broadcast of Life in the Spirit. I pray that you are challenged, blessed, and encouraged as you hear God's Word shared in this message. Going to part two of our series, and uh, we're continuing to focus on this question, who is the Holy Spirit? And uh, boy, there's, plenty, there's a whole series you can just do on who is the Holy Spirit. And God reveals himself to us through the scriptures as a trinity. That's one God manifested in three persons. God reveals himself as Father, as Son, and Holy Spirit. And with that, he is three, is three coexisting, co-equal members. With each of them with their own distinctiveness, their own personalities, but you're saying unified as one God. The Holy Spirit isn't a thing. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. The Holy Spirit isn't a created being. He is God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't an impersonal force emanating from God. He is God. He is the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit is not a it. It's a he is a he. The Holy Spirit is to be obeyed. We're to obey the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit can command us to do something. Remember, he is God. So the Holy Spirit can intercede. The Holy Spirit can regenerate. The Holy Spirit can lead. The Holy Spirit can convict. The Holy Spirit can teach. The Holy Spirit has an intellect. The Holy Spirit has a will, and the Holy Spirit has emotions. So when we look at all that, we can tell from Scripture that the Holy Spirit reveals himself as a person, not a thing. So throughout the Scriptures, we see that the Holy Spirit reveals himself as a person, rather than a thing. So the Holy Spirit showing us that he is a person, what does that do for us? It invites us to know him. It invites us to come to know him, to learn about him, to learn who he is, and have a relationship with him. And there's a big difference between knowing the Holy Spirit and knowing about the Holy Spirit. There's a big difference between the two. First and foremost, we can know the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. We can know the Spirit of God through the Scriptures. Just a couple quick verses here on that subject, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in rights. It's given by inspiration of God. God inspired the writers of scripture to write. 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but check this out. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, inspired by the Spirit. The, the writers of Scripture didn't just have good ideas or anything. They had God ideas. God inspired them, given the very words, the thoughts that we have recorded in Scripture. So we believe the writers of Scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the words of Scripture. You say, well, what does that ha- how does that impact us with the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired these writers. Therefore, the scriptures themselves are self-revelation. They reveal the Spirit of God to us. So since the scriptures are inspired, God is revealing himself through these scriptures, and especially in the person of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures aren't the only way we can know the Holy Spirit. If you're born again, you have this special blessing. The Spirit of God dwells in you. He lives in you. And you can know the Holy Spirit personally, inwardly. You have spirit fellowship with him. I love history, and I love watching documentaries, and I'm just learning about historical facts or historical people. Uh, For instance, uh, Abraham Lincoln, in my opinion, is a fascinating person, and just leading our nation through a very tumultuous time, and there are so many books that are available, so many documentaries, information that you you can read about our 16th president, 
But listen, we can read every book there is written about Abraham Lincoln, and that doesn't mean we know him. We know about him, but we don't know him. And I'm not saying the Bible is just a book. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But there is a balance that we must maintain between knowing God, knowing the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures, and knowing him personally, inwardly. So there's a balance that we have to keep between both of them. You know, think about this. The, the Pharisees knew, knew, knew the Word of God, but when Jesus manifested, and he is the Word of God manifest, they didn't know him. There's a difference between knowing him and knowing about him. So again, we have to maintain that precious balance between knowing the Spirit of God inwardly, because the Word and the Spirit will always agree with each other. They keep, them, they keep themselves in balance and harmony in our lives. So if you're born again, the Spirit of God dwells in you, but that intimate proximity, I mean, Him dwelling in you, you think, well, I have the Holy Spirit. I know the Holy Spirit. Just because He lives in you doesn't mean you know the Holy Spirit. That intimate proximity doesn't mean that you know Him. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> a husband and a wife can share a bed. They can, spare that, they can share that intimate space, but that doesn't make them close as a couple. They can share a bed, they can share a house, but they may, this happens a lot, but they live as strangers, or they, they live limited lives. They don't understand who that person is they're married to. So there's plenty of people who are married, but aren't close to each other. And likewise, it is with the Spirit of God. You can have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, but you don't know Him as you should. In John chapter 16, Jesus makes this statement concerning the Holy Spirit. We looked at this verse last week. John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. You know, if Jesus starts off with that statement, you better listen up, right? I mean, he is truth. And so when he says, nevertheless, the truth of God is revealing truth to you, so you better listen up. So it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and again, helper is capitalized to show divinity will not come to you, but I will, if I depart, I will send him to you. So the helper is the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Amplified Version, which is a great version of the Bible. If you really want to study the Bible, and it, what it does is amplifies these words. It, it brings out the full context of the word that's being used. This is a great example. And, and parakletos means, again, uh, intercessor, counselor, advocate, or comforter. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, and look at this, here's the amplified version of it, comforter, advocate, intercessor, counselor, strengthener, or standby, will not come to you, but if I go, I will what? Send him. Again, not send it, send him, who is the Holy Spirit, to you, and look for this purpose, to be in close fellowship with you. Again, we understand the whole process of new birth, we cannot be born again unless by the Spirit of God. He does a transformative work within us when we're born again. When the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us, he makes us a new person. But that is not the only purpose. The Holy Spirit dwells in us for the purpose of close fellowship. He wants to be known. He makes himself known. Do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know the Spirit of God who dwells in you? So the Holy Spirit resides in us for that purpose of fellowship. He's our helper, our comforter, our advocate, our intercessor, our strengthener, our counselor, our standby. So when we're broken or our soul becomes downcast, the Holy Spirit is there. He comes genuinely moved. Remember, he has emotions. He's not, he's not a thing. He's not a, a thing that has no thoughts or emotions. He is a person. 
So when our heart breaks, the Holy Spirit who dwells in his heart breaks as well. And he's genuinely moved by our pain. He comes to our aid or comes to encourage us. When we experience head or heartache or tragedy, the Holy Spirit feels that pain. He, he sympathizes with us, and he comes to our side to comfort us. See, sometimes we don't look to the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit of God dwells in you. Why would we not look to the one who dwells in us? Jesus walked this earth. He spent time with his disciples. He ate with them. He fellowshiped with them. He knew their families. He lived with them. He celebrated with them. He mourned with them. We, even, we know that he mourned with them because of the example of Lazarus. When he had heard that Lazarus had died, the Bible says Jesus wept. He cried. His heart was broken. Jesus was physically present with his disciples, and I'm sure, man, that must have been an incredible experience to see God in the flesh. But Jesus said to those disciples who experienced him in that intimate level, sharing a meal with him, him knowing their families. I mean, we know that Jesus knew Peter's mother and, and Peter's family. We read about that in Scripture. So we, we, we'd be led to assume that as, as well with all the other disciples. So just imagine that. These words that he said, it's to your advantage, to you that I've walked with for the last three and a half years, that I go away so the Holy Spirit might come in my place. Jesus shares these words about the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Same word helper here in the original Greek, as we mentioned earlier. Another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. <clears throat> but you know him, for he dwells with you, and look at this, and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus said this word, another helper. And that word another is very important. You can say, what's so special about that word another? And it's simply the Greek word allos. And allos means this, another of the same sort. So when Jesus says, I'll send you another helper, another counselor, another comforter to be with you, one of the same sort. I want you to think about that for a second because that's important because if we don't get that, we downplay who dwells in us and we forget about who he is. We, we do this, the Holy Spirit, and I mentioned this before because it's a great illustration. It's not God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you put him down here, you minimize who he is. You actually minimize God in your life. He is God the Holy Spirit and he dwells in you. One of the same sort. Who is the one of the same sort of Jesus? Jesus is speaking. I'm sending you another counselor. Unlike Jesus, the Holy Spirit can dwell in everyone who is born again. Imagine this. Again, if you were with Jesus while he was on this earth, you had to be where he was. You had to be in that location. But since the Holy Spirit is a spirit, he is omnipresent, he can comfort us without being bound to one location. It's just like this. Each one of us can go through a tragic moment at the same time in the, in the day. And the Holy Spirit is not bound by a place. He can minister to all of us simultaneously. He's not bound by time or space. So imagine this, someone who is in need 5,000 miles away. Someone right now, we can, someone could, someone could receive a, a special touch from the Holy Spirit here today, 
But it's, again, 5,000 miles away at the same time, he could be pouring out his spirit, touching someone else. He's not bound by time or space. He is a spirit. So the same Holy Spirit has the same power that Jesus had. He has the same compassion that Jesus had. He has the same wisdom, the same, one of the same sort. So if you're born again, that's who dwells in you. Church, we need to know the helper who dwells in us, amen? We need to know God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us. And there are times in our faith journey when we feel like the presence of God is a million miles away. Have you ever been there before? I mean, it just felt like, God, where, where are you? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? Where, what have I done? And we know this, even though that feeling is real, there is a reason why we feel that way. Now, he hasn't left. He's not, he's not forsaken us. He's not a million miles away. It's not true. And again, while the feeling is true, there are reasons why he feels like he's so far away. I want to give you four of those today. Number one, if we disrespect the Holy Spirit, he will feel distant. If we disrespect the Holy Spirit, he will feel distant from us. Remember, the Holy Spirit is God. And if we disrespect God, he will feel distant. So if we treat the Holy Spirit with disrespect or contempt, it will grieve the Spirit of God. Where do we get that from? Ephesians 4.30. And there's many ways to grieve the Spirit of God. But here's the verse that we need to look at. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We don't grieve the Spirit of God. There's many ways we can grieve, and one is by showing disrespect or contempt. So treating the Holy Spirit as a thing rather than a person shows disrespect. Treating the Holy Spirit as if he's a genie in the bottle is disrespectful. If we do this, if we command the Holy Spirit or demand the Holy Spirit to do something, we're showing contempt. You know how many times in church I've heard people pray and treat preachers even, treat the Holy Spirit as if he is at their beckoning call. I want to say, do you not know who you're speaking to? You are speaking to God, the Holy Spirit. He's not a second-class citizen who answers our beckoning call. He is God, the Holy Spirit. Let's put it in this context. Since the, since the Holy Spirit is another helper, one of the same sort, let's just let's reverse it. If Jesus were here among us today, and he walks in this room, he's in the flesh, and we'd come up to him and we say, I need you to pray for something. I need you to pray for me. Would we command him or demand that he would do it? The answer is no. So why would we ever do that with the Holy Spirit? And the answer is we shouldn't. If you do that, you will show contempt for the Spirit of God. So why is it okay to treat the Holy Spirit that way? It's not. If we treat our spouse, our children, our friends, our family that way, if we show contempt towards them, it become, they become very silent and distant from us. Nobody wants to be around that type of person that's disrespectful. And the world becomes a very lonely place. We can feel like we're on an island and everyone is a million miles away. Number two, unrepentant sin. If we, don't, if we have unrepentant sin in our lives, the Holy Spirit will seem distant. The first word in his name should give us a hint about who he is, church. And I don't mean the, I mean holy. He is the Holy Spirit. He is holy. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the tree. He is the Spirit of God. He is holy. It's who he is. It's part of his nature. It's part of his character. 1 Peter 1.15 says this, But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Not some, not the areas that we're just comfortable with, 
all your conduct because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So when we repent of our sins, come to Jesus by faith, we experience new birth. Thank God for it. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. He sends us the Spirit. He dwells us. He is there with us. He regenerates us. He makes us into a new person. We, we receive a new inner being. On the inside, we have a new heart, new desires. We have a desire to live like Jesus. No longer we have a desire to live like the flesh. And the Spirit of God empowers us to live that life. That's what happens when you're born again. You're born again and empowered by the Spirit to live a holy life. Therefore, if we have unrepentant sin in our life, it grieves the Holy Spirit who is in us. He becomes quiet. He feels distant. So repentance is not this. Sinning, say, God, I'm sorry. And then we just go and do it again. That's not repentance. There's no repentance in that whatsoever. Repentance is when we do this, when we feel convicted or when we recognize our sin and we stop doing it. That's what repentance is. We go the other direction. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us necessarily, by the way. I know some people say the Spirit of God just left me. It's not exactly true. But what happens is our sin is something that's placed between ourselves and God. In that very close space, the Spirit of God who dwells in us, when our sin, our unrepentant sin comes in between us, there is some distance there. We feel it. As a pastor, I've helped couples walk through sexual morality, for example. I'll give you an example. If a husband or wife has been involved in a sexual relationship outside of their marriage, and the, that immorality will cause distance in their marriage. Even if the other spouse isn't aware, the other spouse is cheating on them, there's sexual morality going, the other spouse has no clue, they sense something. They know something. Why? Because that intimacy that they had is diminished. They know something is wrong. So they can't put their finger on it, but I know something's not right. Something's not right in our relationship. That intimacy is not there. So what happens is this. Often, in, in many couples, either the spouse comes clean or the affair is uncovered. And the other spouse, what they do is they begin to think back of how they felt. Going back, like, oh, you know what? I know why I felt the way that I felt because that intimacy was diminished the minute that, that, that spouse become unfaithful. Church, in our case with the Holy Spirit, he isn't unsuspecting of our sin. He knows our sin. You can't hide it from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. You can't say this, can you just hide your eyes for just a moment? He's fully aware of our sin, all of our sin, all of our secret sins. He is fully aware. He's not taken by surprise. There's nowhere to hide from the presence of God. An unsuspecting spouse may not be able to put their finger on it, but the Holy Spirit knows exactly what it is, fully aware of our sin. So when we choose to remain our sin, but we want fellowship with the Holy Spirit, again, I want you to think of in the terms of unfaithfulness, marriage, marital unfaithfulness. You say, well, that's kind of a broad jump, but if you look back at the Old Testament especially, God spoke to Israel as a spouse, an unfaithful spouse. So it's not an example that we're excluded from Scripture. It gives us a great example. So when we're unfaithful to God, it does cause distance in the marriage, distance in the relationship. Go back to the original sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, they no longer had that close, intimate fellowship with God. God sent them outside of the garden. They were removed from his presence, removed from fellowship until their sin was atoned for. Why do we think it's any different? The good news is we do have grace and mercy. We were able to come to the throne. We have forgiveness. But there has to be repentance 
to receive grace as well. And listen, I'm not talking about this. You're walking down the road, you stub your toe, and you say a cuss word. That's not unrepentant sin. It might be this. We need to have a little bit more fruit in our life, but it's not unrepentant sin. What I'm talking about is this. You have active sin in your life where the Holy Spirit has put his finger on your life and said, you know what? This right here. We need to deal with this right now. And he's pushing on it. He's pressing on it. He's letting you know this is displeasing to him. See, this is what he wants. He wants us to repent in that area. And when we refuse to repent, it creates distance. There's a, a, a tension that is there that all of us, we may not be able to verbalize, we could, we could feel it though. Active sin where we don't deal with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, which leads to grace, by the way. Not judgment, but to grace. He's trying to lead us back to grace. So until you repent of your sin, the Holy Spirit will seem distant. So we don't treat our spouses like doormats, so why would we treat the Holy Spirit like a doormat? Conviction, again, is an act of grace. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to abandon you. He is spending extra time with you, showing you his displeasure. He wants you to come back, back into relationship with him. So the Holy Spirit is trying to get you to course correct and avoid, avoid a train wreck. Number three, if you have ought against another person, especially another believer, the Holy Spirit will seem distant from you. Look what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you of your trespasses. Jesus also said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. If you take your gift to the altar, remember your brother has something against you. Leave your gift on the altar. Go, back, go and make right with what is wrong between him, him and you or you and him. And then come back and give your gift. Look at the precedence. The precedence is this. Listen, I'm coming, I'm coming to worship you. I'm coming to give you a gift. He says, leave it there. I don't want it. I don't want your gift. I don't want your worship. I don't want this. Go and make things right with your brother tainted. I've heard this said before. I try to worship at church, and the presence of God just seems so far away to me. Away, it, just, it just doesn't seem like it's anywhere. Maybe it's the worship team. Maybe it's the songs we sing. Maybe, just maybe, could it be that it's the unforgiveness and the ought that you have in your heart against someone else that has created a barrier between you and God? It's not other people. Sometimes we just need to step up and take responsibility for our actions. Amen, church? But we like to blame everyone else and everything else. That shows zero repentance, by the way. We want to blame everything. Why does God seem to distance? I want you to think about this. If you're really trying to press into God, and he seems distant, you can't blame me, you can't blame the worship team, you can't blame the church, you can't blame anyone. There's an issue between you and God or you and someone else. How many times do you have to repeat the lesson until you come to the understanding that, you know what? There's something between God and myself or God and someone else, or myself and another person, another believer. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone, and for without holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. I think it's amazing how the scripture puts those two together. How it talks about being right and being at peace with everyone and the holiness of God. Unforgiveness is opposed to the word of God and to the nature of God. In fact, unforgiveness is a slap in the face to Jesus. In fact, I'm just going to give you a hard visual, and this might be hard for you to, to take, but 
Why don't we just do this? When we have unforgiveness in our hearts towards someone else, imagine Jesus is on the cross. We just walk right up to him and smack him right in the face. He said, I would never do that. But yet Jesus from the cross, while people spat upon him, ridiculed him, says, Father, forgive them. Now you tell me that's not a slap in the face? It is. When we refuse to show unforgiveness towards someone else, someone else who Jesus has died for, he prays, Father, forgive them. Unforgiveness defies the nature of God. It defies, therefore, it defies the nature of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Why is there distance in my life? Because there might be unforgiveness. There might be bitterness. There might be envy. There might be strife. Anything connected to a broken relationship, anything that causes animosity between you and another believer, just fill in the blank because it grieves the Holy Spirit. Have an ought towards another believer, another child of God, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, grieves the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this. Ask any parent who has had two adults, and I don't mean children, little kids, I mean adult children that fight, how it grieves their heart, how it breaks their heart. Ask them this, how it grieves their heart when the other sibling tries to put, pit the parent against the other child. It grieves that parent's heart. It grieves them. Don't try to make the Holy Spirit choose sides if you've got a problem with another believer. Number one, he won't do it. He won't do it. I want you to think about this. As a parent, kids, you love your children. They can irritate you. The other child can be wrong, but you will not put yourself against that child. So why do you think the Holy Spirit would do the same? He, does, he won't. Don't make him choose sides. It actually is a contemptible thing. Do you want to feel close to the Holy Spirit? Examine your heart with God and examine your relationship with others. Number four, if we aren't committed, the Holy Spirit will seem distant. If we aren't committed, the Holy Spirit will seem distant. Jesus made it very clear how committed he is to us. I mean, his actions themselves proves how committed he is to us. From the cross, we don't have to look any further than the cross. How committed is Jesus to us? He gave his life. Sometimes under the guise of grace, though, we treat our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus as friends with benefits. We want to enjoy all the benefits Jesus provides for us through atonement, through the, through the cross, but we don't want to make the same commitment. We want to enjoy all these benefits, but we don't want to commit in a similar fashion. You say, well, do I need to die on the cross? The answer is no, you don't. He's already taken care of that for you. But there is an expected commitment level under grace. Check this out. Here's just one example. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. I don't know what you call love, but I call that commitment. Do you love your spouse? Then you're committed to them. They go hand in hand. Jesus asked, was asked this question, what's the most important thing in Scripture? Jesus, what, what is it? What, can you boil it all down for me? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Again, that, I don't know if that spells you, but it spells commitment. Commitment spells L-O-V-E backwards. Do you love your spouse or do you love your children? If the answer is yes, it's not in the words it's in your commitment to them. You love your children, you love your, your, your spouse sacrificially. You love them. You'd give anything for them. Do we, we show the same commitment towards Jesus? 
You say, well, I don't know that I have to do that. Well, let's just go to the Word. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I, I don't know what you call that, but I look at that as commitment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and so on. And by the way, commitment isn't a, a downplay or down, it doesn't downplay grace. It doesn't, they don't work against each other. I know some of us, we, we say we love Jesus, but our commitment to our spouse, to our children, to our career, to ourselves, to our time, to our money, to our experiences is far greater than our commitment to Jesus. And then we wonder why, there's the, why is there this distance between God? Why does he feel like a million, he's a million miles away? Because the commitment levels are different. I've used this analogy before. I'll say it again. What do you call a couple where one spouse is committed and the other one isn't? And you call it a divorce because that's what's going to happen. I'm just saying we show the same commitment to Jesus as he shows us. And thank God we don't have to endure the cross. Again, I don't understand why Christians who are born again thumb their nose at God and the, the idea of commitment as if it nullifies grace. It doesn't nullify grace whatsoever. True grace is based on love, is it not? Then shouldn't that motivate commitment? True grace isn't sinning as much as we want and then going to heaven. True grace isn't doing this, doing as minimal as possible, showing as minimal required faith and going to heaven. That's not grace. True grace isn't showing that a minimal. True, true grace should motivate commitment, not less commitment, but more commitment. Some Christians hear that word commitment, they get thrown into a tizzy. They think commitment is an effort to earn grace. You can't earn grace. My wife, give you an example. She, I've said this before, she outserves me bar none. Couples, you should serve each other. It's a, it's a commitment to one another. <clears throat> there are times where she wants to do something and I don't want to do it. But you know what? She gives so much. I'm just trying to play keep up with her. I think this is a good place to compromise right here. Because I can't keep up with that chick. So I, I commit to do something I don't want to do because I love her. Because she, she does so much more for me. So what does that do? It's, it's what I'm trying to show you is a picture of grace. Grace doesn't say, yeah, just keep on bringing it on. Keep giving to me because I deserve it. No. Grace should do this. It should motivate commitment. You know what? You've given me so much. I, I, I want to give back to you so much because I love you. God is deserving of greater love, is he not? We say, of course he is because the scriptures point that out. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, all his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? Again, I don't know what you call that, but I call that commitment. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we refuse to commit ourselves to Jesus. When Jesus has committed so much to us, and we refuse to commit ourselves to him. I'll give you an example. All of us that are parents in here. You provide for your children in ways, and my dad's in here, and I can say this now. You provide for your children in ways that they'll never fully understand or appreciate, no matter what you tell them, until they have their own children. 
They don't get it until they have their own kids. And then once they have their own kids, they understand. They can think back, okay, I understand all that my parents did for me. And then I remember, you can remember the times that you were disrespectful to your parents. They've made all this commitment, all the sacrifice to provide for you, to give you a better life. And just because they didn't do something you wanted them to do, you don't love me. You don't love me. And then you, you just want to do this. You want to take that little brat and spank their butt. And it doesn't matter if they have a beard and gray hair. The older they get you, the more you want. Like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with my kid? It hurts your heart when you feel like their love is based on convenience. But your love is based on commitment. Why did we not think the Holy Spirit who has feelings is not grieved when we don't show the same commitment to our Savior? Why, why does it that the Holy Spirit, why does the presence of God feel a million miles away? Maybe our commitment level isn't what it should be. The closer we are to Jesus, the more sensitive we become to the Holy Spirit. The closer we become to the Holy Spirit, the more we understand who he is. We understand his heart. We understand his thoughts. We understand his way. We're more comfortable with his leading. Knowing the Holy Spirit helps us to grow and mature as a follower of Christ. So who, who is the Holy Spirit? Here are just some examples from Scripture. We've covered some of these. He is the author of Scripture. He is the comforter, the counselor, the advocate. He is the convictor of sin. The Holy Spirit is our guide, our lead. He is our ever-present help. The Holy Spirit is our intercessor, Romans 8.26. One of the most encouraging and comforting aspects of the Holy Spirit is this ministry that he provides. He is our intercessor. Because we don't know how to pray often, especially when we're under stress, when life hits you, and you don't know what to pray and what to say, the Spirit of God in you prays for you, intercedes for you. He intercedes with groans, the Bible says, so that when we are oppressed and overwhelmed by trials, he comes along beside us and gives us this assistance, and he sustains us. He is the Spirit of truth. He is the Spirit of life. That phrase, Spirit of life, means the Holy Spirit is the one who produces or gives life. He imparts newness of life so that we can live a new life. He is our teacher. Jesus promised the Spirit of God would teach us all things. He'd bring all things to our remembrance. He is our witness. The Spirit of God is called witness because he verifies and testifies to the fact that we are children of God. As we move through this series concerning the Holy Spirit, my hope is this, that you recognize, you understand the Holy Spirit better. Because if you understand the Holy Spirit better, who he is, who he wants to be, then you'll understand better what the Spirit of God is trying to do in you and through you. You're more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And that's my whole, my whole, my whole hope in the first two parts of the series, is make you more sensitive, more aware to the, the presence of God who dwells in you. Because once we overcome that hurdle, then it's amazing what the Spirit of God can do to you. Your ears are open. Your mind is open to hear the Spirit of God moving, speaking to you. And I believe this, the Spirit of God wants to move in your life, and he wants to speak to you. There's so many of us that have become stagnant in our walk with God. And the, the Spirit of the Lord is not, is not happy with us being in that place. Remember, we are to change from glory to glory. From one aspect of Christ to another aspect of Christ. We're never ever supposed to get into this place where we're just kind of stuck in a rut spiritually. So this series has hoped to re, kind of reestablish that. Reestablish the presence of God in our life. Reestablish who the Holy Spirit is in us. 
and more aware of what he's trying to do. If you know the Holy Spirit in a greater capacity, it'll help you better understand God's plan and purpose for your life. Because again, he's going to lead you and guide you. And if you don't know the Spirit of God, if you can't distinguish his voice from your voice or other voices, how, how successful are we going to be by being led by the Spirit? We can't know the Holy Spirit in any relational capacity unless we first surrender our lives to Jesus. First and foremost, new birth. I believe experience a new birth in our community like ours, a community like ours, which is small, tends to be religious, tends to be traditional. It's much harder for people to be born again in a community like ours than others. And here's why. Because we know about Christianity. But do we know Jesus? We know about the Holy Spirit, but do we know the Holy Spirit? I think it's our familiarity that causes us to stumble in many ways. The question is this, and Jesus said very clearly, you must be born again. You must not know about being born again. You must be born again. So I'm going to ask this question. When did that happen for you? When? When did the polarity of your heart change? When did the nature inside of you switch? And that doesn't mean you came perfect. It just means something changed in you. When did the Holy Spirit come to dwell in you? If you're born again, do you have a close relationship with the Holy Spirit? I mentioned four reasons why the Holy Spirit can seem distant. There's other reasons why the Holy Spirit can seem distant. If I didn't hit it, then why is the Holy Spirit distant? Because he dwells in you if you're born again. So why is he distant? And that's a question you have to answer, and that's something you have to overcome, because Jesus didn't pay such a high price and send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you so that he feels a million miles away. That defies the very purpose of close fellowship. The reason why the Spirit of God dwells in you is for the purpose of close fellowship. If he feels like he's a million miles away, there's a reason why he feels a million miles away. Instead of just going through the motions and pretending like it doesn't exist, let's take it head on. Why do I feel this way? Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this message. It was an honor to be able to spend this time with you in God's Word. If you have any questions or would like to find out more about Holt Assembly of God, please go to our website at www.holtag.org and connect with us there. Until our next broadcast of Life in the Spirit, I hope that you have a great day as you serve the Lord Jesus with a grateful heart.